Welcome to the Beeson Podcast, coming to you from Beeson Divinity School on the campus of Samford University in Birmingham, Alabama. Now your host, Timothy George. Welcome to today's Beeson Podcast. Well, if you're a regular listener of the podcast, you'll know right away that I am not Timothy George, the host of the podcast. Uh, I'm Kristen Padilla, the producer of the Beeson Podcast, filling in for Dr. George as he is away this week uh, delivering some lectures. But I'm thrilled to be here to have a conversation with two guests, Nick and Ruth Ripken. Nick and Ruth, with their three children, served for more than 32 years uh, sharing Jesus across the globe, and I would say are still sharing Jesus across the globe. Uh, they began with the Foreign Mission Board, um, an institution of the Southern Baptist uh, Convention, and now they're still serving with uh, the same uh, organization but called the International Mission Board. And you may have heard of Nick Ripkin because of his book, The Insanity of God, A True Story of Faith Resurrected, which is what we hope to discuss today on the podcast. So Nick and Ruth, welcome. Thank you. Thanks so much. Now, Nick and Ruth are not your real names. I find that very interesting. I've never met someone who has gone by a different name. Um, why is that? Why did you change your name? Back in the early years in Somalia, there were just four of us working in country. And so we were training a lot of people coming in for short periods of time. And so once I uh, trained a group of people on a certain subject, I would just write it down. And then I just started sending it in to mission magazines. And 100% of the things we've done for now 35 years uh, has been printed, and because we're the only ones in Somalia, if that was published under our real names, our ability to work in country would have been jeopardized, and believers' ability to live their lives out would be jeopardized. And so I just asked um, the Evangelical Mission Quarterly to pick a name for us, and they did. And later on, my supervisor said it sounded like a serial killer. So I said, well, that's, that's probably really, really good. So we've operated under a pen name in the hard places since 19, man, that almost gives my age, 1993. But even today, we can travel to the hard places under our real names with our passport. Whereas if it was Nick Ripkin, a lot of the world would be shut out to us. Yeah, and I think one of the really good things is God's wisdom in that because we don't want the stories of believers that have shared their stories with us to be in harm. And by doing this, God has blessed all these years. And uh, as far as we know, no one has been hurt because of our our presence. And we are calling you Nick and Ruth Ripkin while you are here. And I should tell our listeners that the Ripkins are here uh, for our Go Global Missions Emphasis Week, which we have every fall semester. It's uh, put on by our uh, Global Center. And so we're really glad to have you as our guest. Um, I would love for us to hear a little bit about your testimonies, your stories, where you come from, how did you come to know the Lord, and how did God call you to missions? Well, as I said in the movie, The Insanity of God, uh, both Ruth and I are PK. She's a pastor's kid and I'm a pagan's kid, but uh, she can't remember not knowing Christ. But I found Christ working nights in a cheese factory. Uh, I was going to school, I think for 14 weeks my senior year. I worked from 
7 o'clock at night to 3.30 in the morning, and it was in that factory working by myself. You know, I had to drop out of sports, senior play, all those things that people look forward to. But if I was going to go to college, I, I had to save some money. And, um, and in that factory in the middle of the night is when Jesus spoke directly to me. And I knew almost nothing about the Bible, the kingdom of God. I knew no church language. But three times having him speak to me in that factory at night, the third time, uh, I just, there was no doubt that this wasn't the voice of God uh, demanding my life. And I found that very intriguing when I was reading your book. Uh, you described hearing a voice and looking around uh, and not finding anyone and then hearing it again. And it made me think of Samuel in Scripture, hearing the voice of the Lord uh, calling him. Uh, so I've, that's uh, wonderful to hear how the Lord uh, just spoke to you at a time um, when you really weren't searching for him. And I, I hate to say it wasn't exciting. It wasn't... Uh, it wasn't this otherworldly, all oh, my sins have been forgiven because all I knew were little country churches. I knew what my family said about churches and church people and pastors. And it was just routinely negative as it could be. And I thought by giving my life to Christ, that was like a, uh, a sentence of a terrible crime because I'd be stuck in rural Kentucky all of my life, never allowed out of rural Kentucky, and so I had to say, God, you're God, and I can't deny that any longer, but why have you done this to me? And now, uh, last two weeks ago, I think we went to our 86th country, and so I, when I think back to that initial initial conversation with God, if there ever is laughter in heaven, there must have been a lot of laughter that day, knowing what was coming, because I sure, certainly did not know. And so that changed your trajectory. You were headed to the University of Kentucky, but then you decided to go to a liberal arts Christian college. I wish it was my decision. I went the, the third pastor I went to that affirmed this is what God does even today because two other pastors wouldn't confirm it. And uh, he said, it sounds like to me, Nick, that you want to be full-time in the gospel. And I said, I asked him, I said, I can be part-time? And, and he's trying to explain what it meant to be full-time, and I didn't get it, but he was the nearest thing I had to a spiritual mentor. And when he told me I had to go to a Baptist college to be a pastor, I didn't know how to get out of it. And so I went. So you went, and that's where you met your wife, Ruth. And, and uh, before that, my second week at college, I began to read the Bible for the first time, and I read... In one setting, Genesis, I read in one setting the book of Matthew, and when I got to what I now know as the Great Commission, and I read God's command, Jesus' command to go in all the world, I said, wow, I can get out of Kentucky. <laughs> and uh, that was from then to now, my realizing Jesus' command to go to the nations uh, was not uh, debatable. Uh, what is uh, negotiable is where, not if. And after 35 years of missions and, and all these uh, countries later, I still believe it's God's command for every believer. And then we get to uh, uh, negotiate the call being where for what season of life. And so, Ruth, when you uh, before you met Nick uh, at that college, uh, tell us 
uh, a little bit about your story. Uh, Nick said that you grew up as a pastor's kid. So I, did I. So <laughs> well, then we're. You know this story. Then yes. um, it was um, something that I loved being a pastor's daughter. And as a third grader, that's when I began to feel God leading me to do missions. As a sixth grader, when I wrote a paper about Africa, I said, God, I want that to be in Africa. As a junior in college, I got to go to Africa. And all of that was... I raised her money, by the way, so that she could go. (laughs) But all of that was woven in this deep um, heritage that I have as a pastor's daughter where my parents taught me about missions. Um, My dad brought missionaries in our home. My dad put a map of the world every morning on the breakfast table, and we prayed over missionaries and where they were and what was happening. My family didn't even have a map. (laughs) But when Nick and I got together and we chose that this was our journey that we wanted to do together, uh, we could see how God's hand had brought us through each step of this uh, to allow our journey to, to merge and to head to the nations. That's great. And so where in Africa did you first go? We went to Malawi in East Africa first, and that's where um, I thought I would be the rest of my life. And as Nick and I began to see people come to Christ, people begging us to come to their village to bring Christ to their village, uh, we began to experience uh, malaria and became very, very sick. And so it was two years into Malawi that uh, we were told... um, you just can't stay here. And a dear friend said, uh, remember, serving God's not a matter of location. It's a matter of obedience. An Irish Catholic doctor came to me and said, Nick, do you want to see Jesus? And I thought, okay, that's not a normal question, but I know the answer. I said, of course. And he said, if you don't get out of this country, you're going to see him in a couple of weeks. So he called our mission headquarters, and they gave us about three weeks to get out. And so we were allowed to go back to America or to go to South Africa where there were was no malaria. And so um, we went to South Africa for eight years and served in a black homeland under apartheid. And that was a necessary stop for me because I was raised a complete racist. And, and, and under apartheid, I saw what that did, not only to those outside the kingdom, but inside the kingdom. And it was a preparation for me to go to Somalia that was killing people. They're the same race of people, just racially 2% different in different clans, and yet racism was killing millions of people, uh, starving millions and killing hundreds of thousands. And and uh, so I needed that peace to deal with my own heart. Well, let's go to Somalia. Your book, The Insanity of God, really begins, your story begins with a trip that you took um, to what you called Somaliland. Mm-hmm. Uh, tell us about that trip. You described it as descending into hell, um, which really caught my attention. Uh, why were you going to uh, Somaliland and even give us some of the history of that country, Somalia? They, uh, they told us it would take three to five years to get in Somalia. And the thing is, doors are always closed if you're not ready to walk through them obediently. And so two months after we started trying from Kenya, uh, I got into Somaliland. Uh, Somaliland is the old British part of Somalia. And what we know as the other part is was the Italian part. 
And so in 1962, those two were brought together under the dictator uh, Siad Barry. And then in the Civil War came in the late 80s, they split apart again. Um, but I want you to, to imagine there was no mechanism for going in there. So we're just following Somalis around in downtown Nairobi, making friends, having tea with them. And they told us to go out to Wilson Airport, which is a, just a tiny little airport that opened at dawn and closed before the night fell. And, and we would go out there at 4 o'clock, 4.30, 5 o'clock in the morning. And I would just walk up to planes, taking off, like with Red Cross on, on the side or UNICEF on the side. And this one morning, I went up to a Red Cross plane, asked them, where, where are they going? And they were filled with medicines and a little bit of food. They're saying, we're going to Somaliland. I said, can I go? They said, we always need help. And so I walked over to the fence and, and told my wife, I'm, I'm going to go in. And, and she held me and prayed for me. And I got on a plane and started three hours, four hours later. I landed in Somalia, into Somaliland. Did you have any belongings with you? I had uh, maybe two changes of clothes. If I'd known it, I'd at least taken a Snickers bar or something, <laughs> a bottle of water. I don't think I took anything with me and and uh, slept on the floor. And I had heard there was an orphanage there, so I was going to go looking for that. But here was a city of 70,000 homes. Only seven of them had roofs remaining. And everything was in past tense. Uh, the broken down sort of taxi I rode into town, into the city, would say, there's where the Pepsi plant used to be, there's where a school used to be, there's where a hospital used to be, and there was no food. We were finding 50 landmines a day, and it was just a place that I could not imagine existed on earth. Uh, and after three nights, three days there, I was ready to quit, and I had to have another nighttime visit from God. Uh, that spoke truth in my heart that allowed me to make a decision to stay the course that defined the next eight years of our lives. Uh, and Ruth, what was that experience like for you? Uh, your husband is in this country, and there's no cell phones, no email, so you're not hearing from him, and you have three sons. Uh, what was that like for you? That is a question I'm asked a lot, and I try to think back. What was life like then? But we were so committed that this was what God wanted us to do. I think we should have been committed. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe that's it, really. But we, I think we had such an urgency for the task, and so we saw so much desperate need that it just seemed like whatever it took, we were going to do this. I think I... As, I, as Nick said, I prayed for him, I hugged him, and I walked back to the car and sat in the car, and I just said, God, I, I don't know what we're doing, but you do, and we're, we're going to walk in obedience. And so praying your husband through these kinds of things became a real unifying uh, thing for us, even though we were in different countries and doing different things, but um, God... God certainly was was very very close. But one of the lessons we learned that has that allows us to challenge the church, uh, sending is harder than going. I'd rather go to Somalia a thousand times than send my wife in there once, or send my kids in there. Uh, it, uh, you know, we often ask uh, young couples and singles, "What's hardest, dying on a cross?" are sending your only son to die on the cross. And in the nature of God, you have both the father who sins and the son who dies. But 
if the church would just recognize the importance of sending and the responsibility of sending, it would either transform them to the very core of their being or they'll stop sending altogether because sending is much harder than going. And we were to learn that when we started sending scores of volunteers in there and we became their prayer system, their support system, and they leaned on us, I don't know how she did what she did. I could not have sent her in there. Uh, going was easy. Sending was tough. And that's what she did for eight years. Well, you talk in your book about, I believe, in the first chapter, about how things were very clear at the beginning of your call to ministry, um, the next steps you were to take, and now you're in a place that you describe as hell, mm-hmm. um, which I'd like you to talk about why was it hell, um, this separation um, from God. But it, it caused questions of belief and and describe those for us this going from certainty as a young man to now you're faced with um you're in a new country in what you describe as hell and now you have all of these new questions yeah that phrase in the book has been criticized both in the book and in the movie but you know hell is the absence of god and in all of those years in and around, most of the time, in and out Somalia. I never knew of more than 150 believers in Somalia out of 10 million people. And by the time we were kicked out of there, those 150 believers had been reduced to four. And in Somali land at those times, I found three other believers from Europe, two nurses and a single man. Uh, but other than the four of us at that time in the whole country, I did not know of any other believers in the whole place. And if indeed hell is the absence of God and the presence of God, uh, then Somaliland was the closest that I'd ever been to anything like that. And, and I realized how sinful we as churches had been to allow a people group to go 2,000 years without any Christian witness. And I remember coming back during one of those broken months trying to find anybody that could to help me, to help us. And I went back to my seminary in Louisville, Kentucky. And one of my mentors, professor there, I was sort of whining to him all the things we were seeing. And he put his arms around me and said, Nick, why are you surprised when pagans act like pagans? And he went on to say, you should just be surprised when Christians act like pagans. But I, I, I've been struck over the years of what it's like to be perpetually in the Old Testament. Somali, Somalis today live in the Old Testament, and everything you read in the Old Testament is in present active tense there. And so what we've discovered, the only way that we can combat the reality of the Old Testament and that hellish-like environment is with, uh, with the New Testament lives. And, and yet still, those who are willing to go to places like Somalia are, are in the dozens when we should be in our thousands. Uh, still, uh, notwithstanding, the International Mission Board has made a great effort to change this, but still, 70% plus of missionaries from across Christianity are in Christian countries. When you look 
at Afghanistan and you look at Syria and, and you look at Iraq and you look at Yemen and you look at Somalia even today, these are the places where the church has ignored. And, and if you look at where now this could be construed to be political, but it's not. But if we look where our military is dying by the thousands today are exactly the, the exact places where the church has failed to go. And the cost in blood for being disobedient to going as we've been commanded is a thousand times more than the cost of blood if we had been obedient. Because we know now what God does with blood shed in the name of Jesus Christ. And he multiplies that in lives. Uh, it's not the same when, when, when blood is shed for reasons other than who Jesus is. Did either of you have a crisis of faith? Uh, uh, yeah, just because it was Tuesday. You know, I mean, I, I can't remember a day I didn't have a crisis of faith. But the day they killed four of my best friends, I asked my guards uh, to give me some space so I could walk in a rubble. Uh, what little you know of us already, you, you won't be surprised to know that Luth, Ruth every day has a quiet time with the Lord. I have a loud time. And I was having one of those loud times, and I just cried out to God, Are you asleep? Do you not, are you not aware? They had published a list of 150 names to be killed in two weeks in Somalia. And, and, and three of my guards were on that list who were just very strong Muslims. But I was saying to God, If you don't wake up and do something, uh, everything, everyone that loves you is going to be killed here. And, and I, I crossed the line. I promise you, I've never crossed it again. When I said to God, these Somalis are not worthy of the blood of Jesus Christ. And God's Holy Spirit said to me, neither are you. And I said, how dare you to put me in the same boat as these killers? And I was reminded by God that I'd had complete access to the kingdom of God for eight years. And I had denied his kingdom. I had criticized his body, his church, his bride. And God said, who should I... If I'm going to annihilate people, who should I annihilate first? A nation that's had access to Jesus for centuries and is increasingly turning their backs on me? Or should I wipe out a people group that's never had a chance to hear? And that was the question the Holy Spirit put before me. And as a citizen of a certain country, that terrifies me. What about you, Ruth? Well, I think um, the crisis of faith came the day that our son died. Um, I had always thought, you be obedient, you go to the mission field, and God's going to take care of all the the things that might happen. And then the reality was, no, God um, uses things like that to show himself faithful. And it was, it was on Easter Sunday morning. And so the thoughts of what God must have gone through that day that he saw Jesus on the cross was so real to me. And I think, um, as I look back, I see God's hand through it all. But when you're walking through the desert, um, you don't see it and it takes, uh, it takes time. Um, God has been faithful. He has used those crisis times in our life. And as a result of that, we had a voice when we went to believers in persecution and said, um, when they asked us, how did you know about us? How did you hear about us? And we could talk about all those things that um, 
uh, we do in the church in the West to remember them, but then they wanted to know, uh, how do you even understand what we're going through? And we could share the reality of our four friends being killed on one day, but also our son's death. And what's changed us forever, we, we even standing in the room in which our son died, uh, I was saying to God, why not me? Why do I still have a wife that's not been uh, molested eight or ten times? Why do I still have two living sons? You know, most of our, our Christian world wants to ask, why me, Lord? And we we flipped that. God has flipped that. Is why not me? Why why do I have two living kids? Why do I have a a, a home that functions? Why do I have a country that functions? Why why do I have the favor of God? A lot of people around us seem to say, well, somehow because we're a certain race of people from a certain country, we deserve God's grace. No, we deserve hell. We we deserve God's fist, not God's son. And and so uh, I think what God has has really uh, erased from our souls is any sense that God owes us anything and that we owe him everything. What are some other lessons that the two of you learned from Christians who are suffering that you think uh, Christians in the United States especially need to hear and be reminded of? That persecution is normal. It's like the sun coming up. Uh, it, it was normal in the Bible. It's normal today. Uh, where there is a great witness, where there is a great harvest, there's a great persecution. Where there's little witness, little harvest, little persecution. And the question we in the West should be asking is not, why are those people persecuted? Why are we not? And it's not because we have a better government. It's not because we have a better brand of Christianity. It's because we have a anemic witness. The, why would Satan have to use persecution to wake us up when he's already shut us up? I think another lesson that, that has been um, big in my life is that there's no such thing as a church in freedom and a church in persecution. There's just the church. And believers in persecution remind us constantly that we are a body. And no part of the body knows everything about being a follower of Jesus. But if you put the whole body globally, we do know how to be a follower of Jesus. And uh, So we get to connect the dots. And that's the, that's been exciting yeah. for us. And what what they remind us of is there's parts of your body that you don't ever see, your lungs, your heart, your brain, all those things. Um, but we do see our hands and our feet and our eyes. And But they say, remember um, that you can't do without those parts of the body that you can't see. And that that helps me every day to remember how to pray for believers in persecution um, so that we can hold up their arms because they cannot survive without this part of the body that we're in, and we should be aware that we can't survive without them. Normal Christianity is persecuted. Uh, it's estimated that 70% of everyone practicing their faith lives in environments of persecution. So if you want normal Christianity, you go to China. You go to parts of India. You go to those believers in Islam from communist background, Buddhist background, Hindu background, and they remind us uh, that 
everything that God has ever done in the Bible, God's still doing. We don't serve a past tense God. If you do, stay home. If you don't, then the world is the, your place to serve. Tell us about a term that you coined, heart song. What is that? Uh, what is the story behind that I word? I wish I could take credit for that. <laughs> but I, I was with a, a, a pastor. We call him Dimitri in the book. Um, well, actually, he was an engineer. But he um, was in a Russian prison for 17 years. And he, he talked about how every morning he stood at attention by his bed in this little cell, faced the east, and he raised his arms in praise and he sang his heart song uh, to Jesus. And we were to, we didn't know it at that time, but we would find consistently that those who live the resurrection and persecution, they have their heart songs that they sing to Jesus. No believer in persecution, when we asked them, what helped you to grow? What kept you strong? Said, I remember a sermon that I heard or that I preached. None of them did. A hundred percent of them, it's usually singing God's word back to him is what they call their heart songs. And they might have, have had maybe 90% of the songs beaten out of them. But there's always those songs that are chiseled on the walls of their soul that even death does not erase those. Would you like to add anything to that, Ruth? Well, I, th- I think um, it's been fun to get to go to these believers and uh, Nick will say um, at the end of the interviews or discussions or whatever we're, we're having with them, would you sing me one of your heart songs? And uh, They'll look at me like I'm asking them for their firstborn. <laughs> uh, but they'll, they'll usually stand up very shakily and they'll start singing that heart song. And even though we can't understand the words, uh, you can sure see in their face. They're totally connected with glorifying God in that situation. I sat with Constantine in, in one of the Eastern European places, and he was put in prison. He was part of a charismatic movement within the Orthodox Church in his country. And at that time, they're singing Western hymns and singing them in a you know, very you know, unexciting way, uh, just not a lot of heart in that. And while he was in prison, he wrote 600 songs, courses, hymns, praise songs. And today, if you go to his country, they're singing in the Orthodox Church his prison music. And, and, and I got to sit with him. He was 83 years of age when I caught up with him. His wife's already dead. And I asked Constantine, would you sing me uh, one of those songs that you wrote in prison? And he stands up and he's trembling because of his age. But then it's just like I was sitting in the presence of one of God's angels as he sang one of those songs that he'd written in prison that in all over Eastern Europe they're singing now. Uh, uh, those, are, those are songs that will have an eternal nature to them. Well, we're almost out of time, but let me ask you one more question. Uh, why did you write this book, and what do you hope... Um, it will continue to accomplish. What is your prayer uh, that how God will use this book? What what the persecutors do is they get you, put you in jail, put you under house arrest with seven kids for the same amount of time that your husband or 
or, or, or brother or sister is in prison and they tell you your story is going to die in this cell or in this house or in this hole in the ground or wherever they have you. And uh, what we wanted to do with this book is give them their voice back. And I called one of the main characters, uh, the guy who'd been in prison for 17 years, not too many months ago, I heard he had died. And his son said no, uh, got back through to me through the internet, says dad's still alive, but he's old man now, he's in the upper 80s, and he's, he's so uh, uh, hurts every morning because of the broken bones he has and the beatings he had in prison. But he said dad wakes up every morning smiling, knowing that his story didn't die in that prison cell, that his story and his song has gone to bless Christians all over the world and to help them uh, have courage. And, and, uh, and I'm smiling and rejoicing because the book and the movies had that kind of effect. But his son said, before I could hang up, he said, Nick, I need to tell you something else. He said, I'm now the chaplain of the prison that held my daddy for 17 years. Mm-hmm. See, another reason for writing that the, the Insanity of God is to point people back to the Bible and and to let them know that there is an eternal component to their suffering when it's for who Jesus is and that people will be telling our stories for centuries to come if we live full out, sacrifice, give our lives a living sacrifice for Christ, holy and acceptable unto him, then maybe my children and my children's children's children will be singing my story the same way that Dimitri's kids are singing his story. Well, our guests today on the Beeson Podcast have been Nick and Ruth Ripkin. Uh, Nick is the author of a book called The Insanity of God, A True Story of Faith Resurrected, published by B&H. You can get the book on Amazon. And if they wanted to see the movie, how could our listeners watch The Insanity of God movie? They can also go to the Lifeway Films website, and it's right there where they can access it. Wonderful. Thank you so much. It's been a real pleasure. Thanks so much. You've been listening to the Beeson Podcast with host Timothy George. You can subscribe to the Beeson Podcast at our website, BeesonDivinity.com. Beeson Divinity School is an interdenominational evangelical divinity school training men and women in the service of Jesus Christ. We pray that this podcast will aid and encourage your work, and we hope you will listen to each upcoming edition of the Beeson Podcast.